Well, this morning we are starting a new sermon series uh, in the book of uh, Colossians. Uh, we're taking a, a little break uh, from Isaiah. Little, of course, said in the most uncertain way possible because who knows how long we'll be in Colossians. But we are taking a little break from uh, Isaiah uh, and we are coming to Paul's letter uh, to the Colossians. And as is our habit when we start a new book, this week will be a kind of a 36,000-foot view of the, the whole book and an overview to try and help us get into the mindset of the book. Uh, and then next week, we'll begin our expositions proper. But just to get us started, we'll read uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Well, the city of Colossae was in the ancient Roman province of Asia, which is roughly where modern-day Turkey is. So, when you're thinking about where are these our ancient brethren, where's their church? Think of, of Turkey. That's the part of the world that we are looking at. Specifically, Colossae sat within the Lycus River Valley, uh, close to Laodicea, uh, which we know, of course, from Revelation 3, uh, and about a hundred miles inland from Ephesus, the port city uh, that Paul spent three years in. Now, Colossae had, uh, in the third and fourth centuries before Christ, been a prominent city. Uh, particularly, it had been prominent in the manufacture of textiles, and it had specialized into the production of a particular wool that became known as Colossian wool uh, that was renowned for its high quality and its dark red uh, color. At that time, Colossae also sat on a crossroads uh, of two major highways, one that ran east to west from, from the Mediterranean all the way to the Euphrates, uh, and then another one running uh, north-south, uh, running all the way up to the Black Sea. These were uh, trade routes uh, in which goods would be trafficked to and fro. And so, as we know from looking at, at other significant books, especially books like Ephesus, cities that were lay on trade routes, just like today, tend to be cities of prosperity and power. And so, in those third, four centuries B.C., Colossae was, was one of the places to, to be, but not unlike maybe Brunswick or, or other towns that sit along the old highway system, by the time Paul is writing to them, their significance has gone, largely in part because the trade route had been rerouted. And instead of going through Colossae, it now went through Laodicea, which had become the district uh, capital. And so, by the time Paul is writing to them in the early 60s AD, Colossae had shrunk down to really just be a shadow of his former self. It was a small and relatively unimportant city, maybe just better to think of it as a, as a town. 
One commentator, J.B. Lightfoot, who has written something of a classic commentary on Colossians, uh, writes that Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes that the Colossians had never seen him face to face, indicating that Paul himself had never actually visited the church at Colossae, but only knew of it because of reports that he had received, likely primarily from Epaphras, who it seems had been the one to plant the church. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes that the Colossians had learned the gospel from Epaphras, and uh, as we try to work back and reconstruct the scene, uh, what is most probable is that Epaphras had been living, working in Ephesus, maybe just passing through the city as a trader, but somehow in Ephesus during Paul's three-year tenure there, Epaphras had heard the gospel from Paul, seemingly had received some discipleship, some training from Paul, and had gone back to Colossae with that gospel, and he had proclaimed it within his hometown, and as a result, this church was born in this out-of-the-way little town. However, in the intervening seven years or so, it appears that false teachers had come into the church, and these false teachers were threatening to undermine Epaphras's ministry and draw these still relatively young Christians away from the true gospel that they had heard from him. Now, just who these false teachers were is, is hard to discern, uh, just as is the exact nature of the false gospel that they were proclaiming. You know, uh, you may have heard from me before, but maybe you've read it in your study Bibles. One of the ways we understand the problems in the churches is really through diagnosing the disease through the prescription that had been prescribed. Almost all of our understanding of the problems in these churches is through our reverse engineering, understanding what Paul is giving as a remedy to the issue to understand what the issue must have been that needed to be addressed. In Colossians, though, Paul gives us very little material to work with. Part of the difficulty in this letter is that in, like the, in some of his other letters, Paul never directly refers to the false teachers themselves. Instead, he uses the kind of general terms uh, saying things like no one or, or anyone. Do not let anyone move you away. Let no one come and teach you something that is contrary to the gospel. Things like, like that. What that means is it's hard to know just what the root of this issue was. Was this a, a group of, of, of professional teachers, much like the super apostles in Corinth, or like the Judaizers in Galatia, or was it something else? Some have surmised that this might have just been an internal disruption, what we could call um, almost an organic folk mythology that was 
creeping and developing within the church. One commentator uh, calls it tendencies within the environment of the church. What we could understand as something of a subtle culture creep. So, not necessarily anything that is part of a, a cynical plan to undermine Paul or his gospel, not some kind of, of purposeful external force that's coming in, but this kind of just organic tendency that is rising up within the congregation. Others have considered that there were indeed distinct false teachers that had come as a group or as a band, like the Judaizers that Paul tackles in his letter to the Galatians, understanding that this was a concerted effort by a group of teachers who had come to lead this congregation purposefully away from Paul's doctrine. Others have still wondered, others still rather have wondered if it was maybe just one particular charismatic leader who has attracted a following, who's presenting himself as a guide to a higher level of spiritual life. And his commentary on Colossians, Dick Lucas, simply refers to the, those who were disseminating this troublesome doctrine as, quote-unquote, the visitors. And I think that's probably about as far as we can go. Right? Our imaginations can quickly kick into gear, and we can fill in all the blanks, but really what all, all that Paul leaves us with, with his use of general terms, is the understanding that there, that there have been those who have visited the church, whether temporarily or long-term, whether they have influenced the church from outside or inside, but they have come and they have sown the seeds of doubt so that the congregation are beginning to doubt the sufficiency of the gospel that they had heard from Epaphras and that he had brought from Paul. However, just like the identity of the troublemakers themselves, just what it was that they were teaching and how they were leading the people away from the true gospel remains elusive. For a long time, the problem at Colossae was identified as being the introduction of uh, Gnosticism. Uh, now, that's a term that you may or may not be familiar with, but in an in, inadequate in summary, it was a, a philosophy, a religion that, that taught that this material world was created by an inferior god Therefore, the material world was evil, and that asceticism needed to be practiced in order to gain true enlightenment. There's more to it than that, but that's roughly what it was getting at. And for a long time, commentators looked at this, and they saw those marks here. We'll see later that there will be explicit instructions addressing depriving the body or undergoing rigorous disciplines in order to try and achieve some spiritual blessing. That would fit with a Gnostic understanding of this problem. However, more recent scholarship, which has a better understanding of Gnosticism because we have uncovered greater evidence from those early centuries, uh, makes this interpretation unlikely. 
Uh, not only is there little evidence for the existence of developed Gnosticism this early, uh, Paul doesn't actually address any specifically Gnostic views. And so, some, in light of that, have favored a view that what was happening in Colossae was analogous to what was happening in Galatia, that there were Jewish teachers or or Judaizing Christian teachers who had come into the church, and that they were teaching that observance of the ceremonial law was essential in order to gain access to the true Christian life. However, while there is clear mention of Jewish rites and ceremonies here, there are key points that are missing for such a reconstruction, not least that circumcision, while it is mentioned in chapter 2, does not seem to have been a legal requirement of the visitors. And we know that for those who were advancing a Judaizing heresy, that was a central component uh, of what they were saying. One commentator helpfully summarizes a situation like this, He says, the the philosophy, as Paul calls it in chapter 2, is not a Christian heresy, uh, but no single identification of the error is convincing. The most one can say is that the error devalues Christ's supremacy and the adequacy of salvation through Him. It promotes mystical experiences, additional spiritual agents, and a regimen of ritual or ascetic observances to achieve well-being. Despite all of the uncertainty, one thing is clear. The visitors were promoting the idea of a second blessing. They were promoting some kind of higher life theology, saying that, 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 that that higher life, that greater blessing, could only be accessed if those who have faith in Christ add to that faith uh, the observance of certain legal requirements. And this idea, and this is where this particular danger lay, was that this idea was subtle, and Paul will even call it distinctly plausible. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Or later in chapter, uh, in that chapter, chapter 2, in verse 23, Paul will concede that this false teaching has, he says, an appearance of wisdom. So, you understand, this was not a scandalous teaching. This was plausible. It was believable. It looked wise. It looked like something that was certainly worth giving a hearing to. No matter who its promoters were, it would seem that they were winsome. And it would seem that they were subtle in how they went and how they, they went about advancing their positions. And so, this idea 
that there is a second blessing, a higher realm of spirituality that could be entered into through this ritual observance, this self-denial. It had crept into this congregation, it would seem almost unnoticed. It wasn't creating the sharp divisions like we see in in Corinth. It wasn't creating these sharp divisions like we see Paul addressing in Galatia. This, This issue hadn't come in with a hammer blow ready to divide the congregation in two. More, I think we better, we should think about it like carbon monoxide, that very quietly it had crept into the church almost unnoticed, and that is where its profound danger lay. It threatened to take these believers away from Christ before they even realized what was happening. And so, as Paul writes this letter, sitting in prison in Rome to be taken back to the Colossians, he writes this letter to awaken them to the true nature of this false teaching, to show them how dangerous it really was, and to bring them back to that true gospel that Epaphras had first preached among them. He writes this letter, as it were, to detox them so that they could see and that they could rest in, once again, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that is the central and driving theme of this letter, that Jesus Christ is perfectly, excuse me, and wholly sufficient to bring us into the fullness of God's blessing, and that by faith in Him, we are fully united to God and to those blessings. R.C. Sproul wrote, the epistle is designed to help Christians understand that in order for them to gain acceptance before God, they need Christ only. God has already accepted them by virtue of the crucified and risen Christ to whom they are united. While there is a perfection or maturity that still stands before them as a goal, they are already filled in Christ, the perfect one. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, writes, the Christology of the Colossians has a very practical concern to demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ for the believer's every spiritual need. It is just in these terms that Paul applies his Christological teaching in the key polemic passage in chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Christ and Christ alone as head of the body, empowers Christian living. Believers have been brought to fullness in Him as they die and are raised with Him to new life. Believers thus need to continue to orient themselves to the all-encompassing Lord. And that is the real treasure for us in this book. As we come to this book 2,000 years later, in a very different social, political, economic, and religious context, the somewhat 
vague nature of the threat that was being posed in Colossae means that we don't actually have to do a lot of work to untangle Paul's polemic and find an application in our own context, right? We have to do that in some of Paul's letters, don't we? Galatians is a favorite letter, but if we are to truly understand it, we have to do a lot of work to get back into that, the mindset of Paul and the, the Christians that he was writing to. We have to dive into that world and understand what's going on, and we have to, to tease it apart and understand what Paul is, is almost overstating to make his case and how he, is how he is speaking about the law and how he's speaking about grace. We have to do significant work to untangle Galatians if we are to interpret it properly, but not Colossians. Right. Well, this is, a, is clearly a polemical letter. There is a distinct teaching purpose behind this letter. Paul is writing to call these Colossians back from the brink of heresy. The general nature in which Paul talks about it, his avoidance of addressing the false teachers directly, means that in many ways this letter has been democratized. We are able easily to make bridges between first century Colossae and 21st century Georgia to begin with. It's not inconceivable that we would find ourselves in this exact same situation. It is a little hard to believe that Judaizing teachers would come into our congregation and, and that we would fall for their polemic about following the, in order to become Christians, we must become Jews first. It's hard to believe that that kind of teaching would gain a lot of traction here. But it's not inconceivable that in our own congregation, we would come under the influence of a pernicious teaching that would lead us away from our confidence in the gospel. But it is entirely possible that there might even arise within the congregation that, that, that environmental tendency, as one commentator called it, that there might arise this culture creep that comes from within the body that leads us away from confidence in Christ alone. But particularly in these days of the internet and social media, it's it's entirely possible that from within the congregation, a plausible philosophy could begin to be adopted that would lead people away from trusting in the sufficiency of the work of Christ, be led into believing that there's something that could be added to Him, something that must be added to Him, to our faith in Him, if true and full blessing was to be received. But it's not implausible, implausible either to think that a false teacher might come in and make themselves at home in our congregation and promote this kind of self-made religion. Now, it's unlikely they'd come through the doors swaggering and boasting that they have a new gospel that is the key to a higher life, but it's perfectly plausible that a charismatic and winsome individual could come in and win our confidence, and slowly and subtly lead us away 
from our confidence in Christ. Or perhaps even more dangerously, it's possible that our own lying hearts can convince us to slip into a quiet legalism. Nothing quite as organized or overt as falling into a quote-unquote false teaching or a heresy, but quietly, subtly, our hearts, as we struggle with the difficulties of life and wonder sometimes why the abundant life in Christ doesn't feel all that abundant, we can imagine our lying hearts convincing us that if only we lived by a certain set of rules and regulations, then we would be able to grasp that peace and joy that has thus far seemed so elusive. If only I prayed more, then I would be more peaceful. If only I, I prayed more, then I would be more joyful. If only I was more disciplined in my quiet times, then I would be more heavenly-minded. If I just fasted, or if I fasted more, or if I observed the liturgical calendar, or maybe if I, if I help the poor, or if I serve more in church, if only I do more, then I will find that abundant life that has seemed so elusive, I will get what I'm looking for. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul gave one of the wisest warnings that we could ever take into our hearts. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And this letter serves as a warning to us to be on our guard, lest any teaching might lead us away from Jesus. This letter serves as a, as a warning to be on our guard against Facebook theologians, to be on our guard against flashy, highly produced performers who might be able to give us punchy and plausible arguments, but who rob us of the true gospel. It serves as a warning to us to be on our guard against any thoughts that might lead us away from Jesus, to be on our guard against that creeping legalism that before we know it has us believing that our joy and our satisfaction and our contentment and our peace is based even in part on something that we must do. And this letter tells us that the best defense against being led away from Jesus is to intentionally keep our focus on Jesus. It's to fix our hearts on Him and the knowledge and the understanding that in His life and in His death, in His resurrection and in His ascension, God has to borrow from Ephesians 1. God has lavished on us the riches of salvation, so that we are now, as Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 10, filled in Christ. Quote R.C. Sproul again, Colossians provides a reminder that idolatry, setting up anything instead of or alongside God to rival Him in one's thought, service, or affections, 
is an ongoing temptation in the life of God's people. The attraction of rivals to Christ wanes, and the bonds of devotion to Him strengthen only when believers truly grasp the beauty and the glory of their all-sufficient Savior. And so, as we begin our series in this book, just a, a couple of quick points of application this morning. First, if a firm focus on Christ is the most important guardian against falling foul of false gospels or lying hearts, then it is essential that you are spending time in your Bibles. It's one of the reasons why we are committed in this church to sequential expository preaching, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, going through different genres and different eras in our Bibles. It is because the most important thing that I can do on Sunday mornings is show you Jesus, to show you how He is prefigured, to show you how He is anticipated, to show you Him arriving, to show you Him ascending, to show you Him now seated at the right hand of the Father, and to show you Him as He will come again. It is in the pages of Scripture that you hear the voice of God speaking to you, and what He is telling you is all about His Son. It is here in your Bibles, really from the beginning to the end, that you hear the voice of God the Father say to you, this, Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You don't need a pep talk on Sunday morning. You don't need pious advice on Sunday mornings. You need Jesus on Sunday mornings. And so, we have hymns that speak of Him. I, I hope, I know we are truncated in what we're singing just now, but I hope that you concentrate on the words that we sing. We don't just sing old hymns because we like old things. We're not just a congregation of antiquarians. We sing these things because these are hymns that have been proven through the ages to speak and, and tell us and cultivate in our hearts worship for Christ. The lion's share of our service is given over to the reading and the preaching of Scripture so that we can see this Jesus more clearly, so that we can understand the magnificence of His saving work more fully, and thereby cling to Him more closely. Our prayers on Sunday mornings are prayers that are founded upon Him, not just because we pray them in His name, but that everything that we pray is a consequence of what He has done in us and for us. And so, the first point of application is be in your Bibles, and, and point 1b would be come to church. Now, I know that it's difficult and it's different right now, but we must prepare for the norm, not the exception. 
And there are good and there are right reasons why some of you, especially you watching, cannot be here just now, and, and that's okay. But let's guard against slipping into a mindset that sees church as optional, as something that you do when you feel like doing it. The Puritans, you've heard this from me before, described the Lord's Day as the market day of the soul. One Puritan said the Lord provides for us in our daily Scripture readings a dish, that is to say He gives us a meal, but on the Lord's Day He gathers us together that we might feast. And so just as it's important for you to get to your Bibles individually, it's important for you to get your Bibles together that we might come together in church, not with a consumer mindset of what is in this for me, but with the expectation of coming in, saying to me, and praying to the Holy Spirit, sir, we would see Jesus. We come to our Bibles, we come to worship with the posture of the Song of Songs. We come here expectant, anticipating, seeing our beloved, hearing His voice, and delighting in Him. And so, secondly, or I guess maybe it's thirdly, related to that, pray for your elders. Pray that we would be men who are Cap, who, that, that we would be men who are captivated by the gospel. Pray for us and pray for the future elders that God would raise up in this church, that we would be first and foremost the lead worshipers in this congregation, that we would be men whose eyes are unwaveringly fixed on Jesus so that we have lost sight of everything else besides Pray for us that we would be men captivated by the gospel so that we would be on guard against anything that would come in and lead you away from Jesus, and that we would be men who would honestly be able to say to you, come and follow me as I follow Christ. I know you pray for us. We feel it. We know it. We are tremendously blessed by your prayers. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Continue to lift us up to the Lord that we would be able to protect this congregation against plausible philosophies, and that we would be able to continually lead you back again and again to the true gospel. And then finally, read your Bibles. As important as church is, it is also important that you don't leave these doors and not hear or read Scripture until you come back next week. By the grace of God, we have the Bible in our own language, a benefit that many Christians throughout the ages never had and that many Christians around the world do not currently have. And by the grace of God, we are literate, a blessing that many Christians in the history of the church weren't did not have, and that many Christians around the world now do not have. But you have a Bible, and you can read that Bible. So do it every day. Not because 
it will earn you a blessing, not because God will look down and say, oh, look how good they are, but read your Bible, come to it every day to fill your mind and your heart with the knowledge of where the true source of your blessing lies. Every day you are assaulted by a world that wants to tell you how to live, and it's wrong. Every day you are assaulted by a world that wants to tell you what to believe and where to find your hope and what to place your joy in, and it's wrong. Now, sometimes in the goodness of God, they get things right, but the system itself is wrong. Politics won't give you peace. Sociology won't give you the answers that you're looking for. Economics won't give you joy. You need Jesus. And so come every day, read His Word, listen to His voice, be reminded of the true context in which you live. One of the reasons why the letter to the Colossians is so significant is because the problem they faced was distinctly ordinary. And by the grace of God, it seemed it has been caught before it did much damage. We can read letters like 1 Corinthians and Galatians and perhaps struggle to relate. These controversies were so extreme and had already done so much damage. But there is something ordinary about Colossians, and that means that as we go through it over the next few weeks, months, it should be a letter in which we are able to see ourselves fairly clearly. The things that Paul tackles here are crouching at our door. And may it be that by the grace of God, we will come away with a stronger grip on Christ and a deeper confidence in the sufficiency of His saving work. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we confess that there are many times where we grow lazy in our faith, where we are uh, do not lift up our Bibles when we ought to, when we slip into social media or we switch on the TV, because it's easy and it's there. But we pray that you would help us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, not by way of earning a blessing, but simply that we might get to your Word, that we might know our Savior better, that we might see the fullness of the redemption that He has brought, that He has bought and brought for us, and that we might then rest ourselves in Him. Lord, guard this congregation. Strengthen us over these next few weeks and months, and all to Your glory. Amen.